0: Welcome back to Sports and Society, it's the Ides of March, and man, do we feel like we need to be wary today. How are you doing today, Kyle?
1: Yeah, that's a good introduction. We do need to be wary, don't we? Um, yeah, I'm doing well, and me and mine are, are healthy at, at this point in time, which it's interesting that we need even need to point that out. Uh, and so... In some ways it it feels weird to be talking about a sports world that doesn't exist, uh, but nonetheless, there's something to talk about in it not existing, which is also interesting. but
0: yeah, I suppose that on some level, I would hope that this is a time for reflection when we can come to a better understanding of sports. But I think, as we shared a couple of weeks ago, my guess is that this is only going to make sports seem more important when they come back, which is probably not the right thing.
1: Yeah, there was a piece in the New York Times this morning, I don't know if you saw it, Mm -hmm. that was essentially posing the question, could this be a catalyst for a reshuffling of the sports world, uh, both in micro and macro ways? Just could it lead us to a place to where we ask big questions and maybe make some big changes or even just minor changes in how we relate to sports as a society? Uh, I think... As one that has spent so much time on a podcast like this, I wish the article had gone further. But nonetheless, to see that question in a mainstream publication like the New York Times was interesting and mm-hmm. seemed worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I'm not uh, bougie enough to subscribe to the New York Times. So, uh, you know, uh, I'll leave that to you. But it is an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> um, I I think we're going to see it will be different. Um, I mean, it's some of the same questions we're seeing about everything else. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen the tweets and stuff about how everything that seemed impossible all of a sudden seems possible, like e-learning and uh, universal Mm -hmm. basic income. All these things all of a sudden seem a lot more possible than they did Mm -hmm. a little while ago.
1: This may not be wholly related, but I'm finding it intriguing right now, and I think there is a little bit of a crossover into a sports conversation, but speaking of the New York Times, the first thing I want to say about that is I didn't subscribe to the Times until we did our kind of rubric of mm. grading sports journalism, and I enjoyed the sports journalism from the new york times so much that that's what led me to subscribe to it Interesting, which i think is interesting and then also within this current crisis i have been paying so much more attention to local news like way more than i ever have i think at any point in my life uh and that has me thinking about what that would look like were I to pair my desire for there to be more localism in sports with actually following up on that with something like getting local sports information.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, So I have no idea where those questions would lead to, but nonetheless, they've been on my mind this week.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, it's been fascinating to me because The Guardian continues to be my main source, but I've been finding myself... Not checking as much. And so I guess w- this can lead into um, kind of our, our uh, we're one week into no sports essentially at this point. And what does that look like? Uh, I think we'll be doing this as a recurring thing kind of to, as we look at our own experiences in the world around us without sports. What does it look like, um, our professional sports? And uh, it's been fascinating in that I, you know, I find myself recursively going to check ESPN and then immediately going on because there's nothing worth looking at on there uh and in the Mm -hmm. same way i I kind of got myself on a bit of a news diet these days that i try to only you know allow myself like a 30 minute binge every once in a while but i try not to be on it the way that i usually am which is pretty much a constant all day so it's been fascinating just the way that my structure of uh, examining sports news and news in general has changed
1: Mm -hmm. it also seems significant and worth pointing out that ESPN not having anything to report on says a lot about what we have been unpacking probably for our entire adult lives of what is ESPN Mm -hmm. and why do we go there every day. And I think this is evidence that you go to the website and there's nothing there. There's nothing to report on, which says a lot about their angle into the sports world.
0: Well, it was. I um, I don't have strong evidence for this, but it was interesting to me that I felt like ESPN w- delayed their coverage of the impact of the virus on sports, which I found to be an interesting angle. Um, mm-hmm. That I think that they kind of knew that this was not good news for the sports world. Um, so, anyway, just interesting.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you about your experience with the nba shutting down and maybe i can preface it just very briefly with i was somewhat shocked and alarmed at how serious it all this all felt once the nba shut down and like looking back on my experience of learning that information i'm like still kind of unpacking like why did that hit me so hard and what, what should we make of that? And another kind of add on to that is um, many of my friends that pay attention to sports, it wasn't until the NBA shutdown that we started talking about coronavirus uh, more actively. And so it was kind of a catalyst for this communal experience of coronavirus for me personally. Hmm. And so I wonder, yeah, what you made of the NBA shutdown?
0: Well, I think it was crucial for where we are now. And I have to confess that, you know, we're not where we need to be. But I think we've made solid progress, perhaps faster than some of these other European countries did. Um, although the whole freaking testing thing, good grief, there's a lack of leadership there. But um, anyway, um, it is uh, it is fascinating to kind of... Uh, Think about how what would have happened had Rudy Gobert not tested positive when he did, because I think that was the precipitating point that led us to shutting down schools to shutting down public gatherings and all of these things. And I think that if we hadn't seen such a high profile thing happen you know, I could see us very much into the next couple of weeks having conversations about, well, do we shut down the NCAA tournament? Or, you know, even I was in a place where uh, I was kind of okay with sports without fans, but I think this is very much the right way forward. and I think we have to credit the NBA for being uh, proactive on that and kind of forcing everybody else's hands, because I think this is very much a liability situation, and no one wants to be the one that didn't that didn't do it, which is why I'm, uh, so I was sharing before we got on the air that Liberty University is um, uh, saying that they're all going to come back. They're about the only ones that I know of that are, are continuing on with in person classes after spring break. Um, and I have to think that they're opening themselves up to massive liability suit when everybody else is shut down. If, like, I mean, if they're the, it's not in Southwest Virginia right now, and if the way it gets into Southwest Virginia is through Liberty University, then they're opening themselves up to some really, I think, uh, catastrophic damages there. Um, not that I would hate to see Liberty punished in some way, but anyway.
1: Yeah, the liability piece seems so important and such a a valuable tool for gauging goodness and badness maybe Mm -hmm. like to get right down to it and it seems like when there is a liability issue in sports the nba seems to be really good at coming out on top of this stuff um one side question i'll throw in that we can maybe come back to come back to later but it's on my mind is i started wondering about insurance for sporting Mm -hmm. events and I'm ignorant of if it exists. Uh, I'm sure it does in, in to some extent, but I can't imagine that everyone that has an investment in March Madness is going to get their money back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an interesting question. So I, I think if I were to fast forward to what am I going to be paying attention to kind of in the next couple of weeks is to see what that conversation around insurance for sporting events looks like. Uh, as for the NBA, I... Yeah, I, I think it's. I think already, I'm going to make a little bit of a prediction, kind of hot take here. Is I think we'll look back and say, "Thank God for the NBA." Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess my personal impression of how this was all unfolding is that it not only I wasn't the only one that found it serious once the NBA shut down. Mm-hmm. That I think we all did, and it it kind of had that collective effect of reminding us who and what we are within a society. And when something that powerful and that uh, notorious in a way, not in a bad way notorious, just everyone knows about it, uh, shuts down, it kind of set a precedent and said like, okay, which side are you on of this liability conversation? And that NBA was the leader and Liberty is the trailer makes me really happy. (laughs) Um, So
0: yeah it is when I think your your question your point too about people not being aware of it is really something that I have uh, not understood but I'm coming to grips with in terms of um you know I was talking to a friend who's was is very intelligent and on top of these things and she works. For an organization with a lot of intelligent people, but they kind of had to have a conversation where most of her coworkers, are like, well, this isn't a big deal. Is it in the like, had to walk through the know, like, this is a big mm-hmm. deal. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think we shouldn't be surprised that a large majority of the population doesn't really understand what's happening right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I also wanted to point out the NBA supporting the workers. Mm-hmm. that labor in the arenas and i probably would need to look a little more closely but it's my understanding that kevin love was the first one
0: that's kind he, of what i heard first as well yeah yeah
1: and i also want to just point out at how how brilliant i found his commentary on what he was doing uh i, I was just really impressed by it and inspired by it and I am sure there's a lot more complexity to all of it because I can't imagine how all of that is going to be managed. And I'm sure as soon as that type of money shows up in an entity that's not prepared to manage that type of money, uh, I I can imagine there's going to be all the human messiness in Mm -hmm. all the corners of how it plays out. Nonetheless, the initiative was there, the commentary was really kind and welcoming and Kevin Love even connected it with uh, just of how like everything that is going on around us is affecting our mental health, both personally and collectively. And when someone really wealthy in a capitalist system has the opportunity to put money towards something that's going to affect a lot of people negatively, uh, you have a responsibility to do it. So it was like this really kind call out, but also support and so, Kevin Love, if you're listening, I, I really found what you did impressive. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, and Mark Cuban as well. I'll give a ton of credit for being one of the first out there for that um, and setting the tone, I think, as from the ownership mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. So. But... Anyway, well, let's... Um, I think we'll keep you guys updated on our thoughts about this, not that our thoughts matter very much about this, which I let's at this point take a moment to shout out the German, or not the German, the genius, uh, Jürgen Klopp, and his response when asked about this from a uh, <laughs> reporter and just saying, what I have to say does not matter at all. Um, right. And, and tons of credit to him for that. Yeah.
1: Gosh, I wonder if we can get Jürgen Klopp on.
0: Oh, the
1: beef. I think we should try. I think we should try. All right. <laughs> I mean he's not doing anything right now.
0: <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't say that if we're able to get him on. Yeah. But,
1: uh, <laughs> oh man, uh, that would be really
0: fun. Yes, it would. Well that's uh we're what we're kinda gonna do over the next few weeks, and that's a good segue there, is that um we're gonna look back at some historical moments to look at how they've impacted uh what exists today and kind of Taking a long view of what's happening in the sports world, as well as uh, hopefully having some guests on to talk about um, their perspective on things. So that should be coming in the next few weeks, and we're going to kind of launch that off by talking about um, Everest and mountain climbing today. So uh, we, I think, have been collectively fascinated by climbing videos of both the mountain and the rock variety for a while. So uh, tell me a a little bit what you're thinking about this, Kyle.
1: Yeah, I think, one, I want to point out as a history teacher how much I love the idea of looking back to events that we now call seminal because of what has happened thereafter and finding what it is that makes them interesting and significant and valuable to talk about. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, Secondly, I think Everest got on my radar this week with the news that Everest has closed down. And at first glance, anyone I think that pays just any attention to the mountaineering world, and I think you don't have to be an expert on mountaineering to understand how significant Mount Everest is um, in the mountaineering world, but also just in kind of the way it pervades society and how I, I would imagine it's probably one of the most famous landmarks that any physical geographic location uh, has ever garnered. And so, in that way, the idea that Everest is closed down is fascinating mm-hmm. uh, because it Um, Begs the question, what does that mean for a mountain to close down? And when you start to answer that question, you realize that there is a micro society on Mount Everest that kind of undergirds this really messy and tense and really fascinating microcosm of society that exists on the actual mountain and then you can zoom out a little bit and you've got the mountaineering world and then you zoom out a little bit and you've got adventure tourism and you've got if you zoom out a little bit more you get into these kind of conceptual things of imperialism and colonialism and elitism and classism And no matter how far out you go from the center, which is the summit of Everest, uh, what you find is a whole lot of important things to talk about when it comes to power and class and essentially an athletic feat that's happening in a really complex society. So in that way, Everest closing down would be hard to completely codify. There's a lot to talk about there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a good place to start the conversation is with the first summit of um mount everest and i think you'd you've got a little bit to say about the first summit if i'm right
0: yeah so this i mean this was a long-term thing it started the first reconnaissance missions were in 1921 uh, and there were a number of uh, of attempts to get there um, until finally it was summited on uh may 29th of 1953 by edmund hillary and tenzing norgay uh sherpa who came uh, with him. Um, uh, and so it's fascinating, I did. I learned for the first time while researching for this, that that, that expedition that included Hillary and Norgay had two other, uh, another pair of climbers that made it within 100 meters of the summit uh, three days earlier, but turned back from oxygen stuff. So they were responsible for a lot of the breaking trail stuff that would allow Hillary and, and Norgay to uh, summit a few days later, but we're now seeing Upwards of 300 permits a year given uh, just on one side to allow for climbing. So it is, uh, it has become uh, a feat that many climbers, mountain real, uh... real uh, hardcore mountain climbers, do not consider to be legitimate mountain climbing. But it's very much for the rest of us still something that we look at with awe and 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 splendor. Even though I personally have no interest in climbing Mount Everest at all. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I I think, um,
1: again, there's there's so much to talk about in there. And I was doing a little bit of research. So to get a permit at this point in time is around $1,200. If you get the Nepalese permit, that is. So you can go up the Nepal side or you can go up the China side. Uh, And so that's big business for the Nepalese uh, government Mm -hmm. to some Mm -hmm. extent. Uh, there's other numbers to throw out here. If you were to go with a Western guide, you're looking at anywhere between fifty dollars and $100,000, uh, 50000 to to 100000 to climb Everest, or in the words of kind of true mountaineer folks, to be carried up the mountain <laughs> um, is how it's often talked about. And then it's also interesting that... Uh, kind of mentioning the Sherpa part of it, and I am just getting educated on this, so I can't claim any expertise or precision in how I understand it, but as best I understand it, uh, Sherpa is a ethnic identity, and even within the Sherpa ethnic identity, there are eight strains, uh, so there are eight types of Sherpa ethnic identity, and it's interesting to kind of scour the internet a little bit about the appropriation of that term Mm. and like other terms that are laden with uh racism there's different takes on it but it seems to be some consensus around the idea that one the way we use it often as a verb in the west right so like you Mm -hmm. sherpa someone um That's extremely problematic when you're (laughs) using a really complex, diverse ethnic identity as a verb in the West. Uh, But then it becomes even more interesting when you look at the recent history uh, alongside the ancient history and older history of um, Sherpas and Westerners climbing Mount Everest. And what, what you find is kind of that outer circle I was mentioning is this is where... Uh, the elitism, the classism, the colonialism, the imperialism, all of that kind of rests in that space very obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the long mm-hmm. and short story is that um, it's really well known now in the mountaineering world of Sherpas do all the all the labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often summit like sometimes 20 times in a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some Sherpas that have uh, summited hundreds of times and they're the ones setting up the ropes they're setting up the ladders they're even taking beer up to the upper camps so that after the summit the westerners can enjoy a beer and a cigar Uh, so it's it's a a class divide on the mountain that mirrors class divides elsewhere
0: yeah I think it's uh, it's noteworthy here as well that um, they're within the uh, serious mountaineering world I think that these individuals are appreciated and revered for what they can do. I mean, the the physical attributes of some of these Sherpas are absolutely staggering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, the people that are serious mountaineers understand that. Um, but it's everyone else that is there that doesn't kind of get it um, mm-hmm. and is not seeing all of those pieces to it. Um, so it is... Uh, It is such a weird world, and I like your way of like a a micro society almost on the mountain with the same kind of divides that we see everywhere else. I mean, similarly to how when you get to the the, um, mountainous west and the Montanas and the Dakotas, that you see that a lot of the stereotypes that exist for... The African American community here on the East and West coasts are used to describe the Native American communities in those places. So it's uh, it's very much similar things that ring true throughout throughout these societies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I was interested to learn. Um, I, guess, I guess I so there's a couple documentaries that stand out for me about Everest that have been significant in my kind of lifetime fascination and interest in it um but most recently was the documentary Everest that I think was like Mm 2010-2011 something like that and it was meant to recount the experience as detailed by John Krakauer in his book Into Thin Air Mm -hmm. and I would imagine there are others that can say a lot more about the significance of that book but I think Everest as it exists in the mindset of the West was really solidified by that book. And it's an extremely problematic book uh, in many ways, as is John Krakauer as a writer, in my opinion. Um, But it led to a lot of interest in the Sherpa experience, which was followed up by a documentary called Sherpa. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that one? Mm -mm. So it was meant to be kind of a puff piece documentary about how amazing Sherpas are at what they do uh, and their real skill and preciseness. And it ended up being about a labor dispute. Um, Essentially, what happened while this documentarian was filming is there were about 20 Sherpas that were setting up some ropes above camp four, so very near the summit. And there was a group of European climbers that were climbing without ropes, mm. kind of like in, as an homage to Sir Edmund Hillary. Mm-hmm. And they crossed some of the ropes that the Sherpas were putting in place, and a piece of ice fell and hit a Sherpa. And so they started like cursing at each other and essentially fighting right near the summit. And then when they got back to camp that night, all the Sherpas got together and were talking about what happened, and then they literally started stoning those European climbers, throwing rocks at them. Uh, and then went on strike and refused uh, to climb with any of the clients that were there. Um, that has been followed up by there's been kind of like a local growth movement in Sherpa community, and they have started their own guide outfit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you got into this one too, but I was fascinated to learn that uh, many of the Western guides are blaming the Nepalese guides for the crowding and deaths mm. uh, that have marked the last few years, which gets even more problematic mm. and mm. creates just this whole kind of labor divide that is um pretty harrowing to read about um, hmm.
0: so. it is it 's such a world, world and i I go back to watching um I think what was most enlightening for me in some ways was discovery channel ran a uh, documentary series called uh, Everest beyond the limit in the uh, late two thousands. Um, mm-hmm. uh, three seasons of watching, uh, a particular guide and his group of folks go up there. Um, and hey, a, yeah, you see that the Sherpas are freaking phenomenal. One in particular yep. that does amazing things. Um, but you also see how stupid these western folks are uh, yep. people that are being told like over the radio come back down come back down they refuse to come back down and uh it's just uh it, it revealed the absolute after watching that i was like i don't know why anyone would want to do this but apparently all that stuff does is make more people want to do it which is uh, even if we go back to um into thin air like it's all that tells me is I don't want to be in this environment at all. But apparently there's a lot of people that that's very appealing to for some reason. And that's an interesting thing that uh, I, I'm intrigued to dig into more. Yeah, and it seems like
1: a worthwhile place to point out that Everest is considered by like square foot the most polluted place on the planet. Um, yes. Because of all the waste that remains up on the mountain and is hard to remove, uh, in particular the oxygen canisters, I've I've have I, I remember hearing about that in the mid two thousand, like just at, at, in in the early two thousands, um, and how it's still a problem. They still haven't figured it out, other than to hire Sherpas mm-hmm. <laughs> to load up a bunch of trash on their back and march down. Yeah. Yeah. But- um I guess for me then to that point of like why people still want to do it um I, I would be interesting interested in hearing your thoughts on kind of what I think is a trope tip for the most part but also maybe worthy of some some more conversation and that is the human desire kind of at its plainest most general level to summit mountains and what we make of that and um i guess maybe in kind of a pejorative negative way into the question like is it anything but imperialism is is there a a way that we could like redeem it and say that it's it's okay um and because i guess i'm just not sure that there's a justification for climbing mountains
0: no but i guess i don't search for a justification as much as an understanding of i don't I don't uh I don't think there's any justification for anything that we do on some level so I guess I'm not mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't I don't see for it. Um but I, I it is interesting. I'm looking at this from the perspective of someone who uh, because I can't go to the gym, uh I hiked up to the top of Mill Mountain which is a 6 mile round trip from our house yesterday, first time I had done it, uh which was I was very happy to do that and so there's something in me even that wanted to see that um Mm -hmm. you know climb that mountain and come back down again and then when you get to Mm -hmm. the top and there's these bunch of bozos that are still out and about then i just walk right through them staying six feet away and walk right back down the other side right (laughs) but um i I think there's something about the desire to test yourself and in some ways i think this goes back to um and there's a documentary that you uh that we uh, we looked at in preparation for this called mountain and i think one of the early quotes in that is about uh how mountains were something that you avoided for a largest part of human history they were not something Mm -hmm. you were ever going to seek out and i think that for me this really speaks to um finding an emptiness in in modern society and not uh, physically being taxed i don't know many people that work really hard at a factory life that then want to go climb mountains afterwards Mm -hmm. like this i think that there's a Uh, I think that there's a sense that uh, it's going back to the Victorian age that this these were people that didn't have anything else to do with their life and so they did it I think that there's something about pushing yourself physically to do something that is compelling and always going to be there with us and I think that we have distanced ourselves so much in many of our lives from physical work and physical exertion that that we get to these extreme versions of it in some ways that you're not doing anything physically every day. So that requires then that you go do something really physically demanding to prove yourself because you don't feel adequate or something along those lines.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really thoughtful. I, I really like that. And that, I guess that's the piece that immediately latches it on to Victorian conquer and Victorian imperialism. And causes me to want to maybe dip into a less Western Mm -hmm. history of mountain climbing. And I I find it kind of sad that I'm ignorant of it. Mm. As in, I don't know the Japanese history of climbing mountains in Japan or the Chinese history of climbing mountains in China. And to what extent those imperial powers uh, were interested in it. And then also, if there are other iterations of the story you just told about yourself, um, that if there are more examples out there of people doing a local version of it, and I can only speculate, again, just completely ignorant, but um, I'm sure there are books written on the topic of... uh, the spirituality and religious aspects of climbing these mountains uh, and how that has played out through history. Um, so I just think of obvious examples of, right, like the Greek gods are on a pedestal mm. literally. Uh, and so it's, it's something about this concept of reaching to the heavens in kind of this bifurcated world that we're these lowly creatures down here. And as we go up, we're, we're closer to this supreme, perfect power. Uh, So what role that has to play in it or the extent to which that's just been kind of like a a foolish excuse. Um, But I I often think and am often in a whole lot of conflict when I'm watching documentaries about mountaineering and mountains in general is how taken I am by the image of a mountain set to beautiful music, mm-hmm. uh, in that it, it has an effect; it is effective, and so I, I am constantly asking myself, "What is that? Where where is that effect finding a place in me?" And I have to admit that something like "Into Thin Air." latched on to the masculinity and machoism and power tropes i was raised in and now when i watch i still experience the beauty and still experience an effect but it's altogether different and so like you it leads me to this place where it's like gosh who wants to do that and why are they doing that
0: um well i think that yeah i think that there's kind of two different layers that i kind of identify in this and it's much more multifaceted than this so this don't get me wrong with this but i think there is a spiritual element to it if only because with mountains we see there's something about the grandeur of nature that i don't think we want to as- underestimate in this moment mm-hmm. that there is something in us as humans that's designed to be overcome with all when we see amazing things like the himalayas and i think we see that everywhere and that's why when you know these ancient societies and even modern societies, you know, across the world, will look at their mountains and their hills and think of that's where the divine is because there's something powerful and awe-inspiring in that space. So I don't want to discount that, uh, and I think we see that even you know things like Buddhist monasteries being high up in the mountains and mm-hmm. things like this. I think that there's a real fundamental element to that. So I think there's a difference between those folks that seek to do this for an experience of that, um, of that, uh, of that finding about yourself, understanding the world better through that moment. Um, you know, testing yourself physically, but also, uh, allowing yourself to grow mentally in that moment. So I I kind of have that moment, but then I also have, um, what I find kind of frustrating about the modern mountaineering world exemplified through Everest, but also through, um, general mountaineering is i think there's become a bit of a consumerist vibe to it um Mm -hmm. that you're never satisfied and so you shared a video um uh, silence was that the name of the uh, Mm -hmm. adam um and so he was driven to to climb this route that's considered the hardest rock climbing route in the world no one cares about it except for you know this very elite group of individuals but for him it's a major driving force and i think that he uh, but at the end of the day, he's always going to be unsatisfied with that and be looking for that next mm-hmm. that next thing. I think about that, you know, I, I was amazed with the Dawn Wall. I thought it was a beautiful documentary because of the story it told about the people involved. But um, you know that Tommy Caldwell is not satisfied and is looking for that next mm-hmm. thing. And I find that to be a, a very difficult and different way of looking at it, that I don't like that consumerist, I need to do this to check it off of a list. I think I find that rather frustrating and disconcerting,
1: yeah, like you said, it's so multifaceted, and there's so much to it. is it my mine kind of just exploded with thoughts about that. The first one I had was with Adam Andra climbing that route. I found it fascinating to learn that it was his route that he created mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a um a self generated challenge. Which were that to happen off camera and I just heard about it through a story or if I was like good friends with him and he was like, hey, do you want to try and come cl- climb this route that I created? It's the hardest route in the world. Right. With it when if there are not cameras there, my kind of predilections for what sports is are only going to make that awesome in my brain. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, this is perfect. I love this. Um which is probably problematic. And I need to look at that a little more closely, but, uh, it was also a way to like secure sponsorship for him just as, um, uh, Oh, I just forgot his name, but doing the free solo climb, what's his name? Oh
0: yeah. Oh gosh. How can I forget? Uh, Honnold. Um, Uh, Alex Alex, Honnold, Honnold,
1: right? Like Yes, there is an inner part of that for him, but he also invited cameras uh, and has made a lot of money off of doing that. So there's that part to it. And then it's the um, the part that we share, I think, of living these place-based lives and homemaking lives or at least strive for them that just completely clashes with that mantra of let's see what's next. And that kind of dips into me, the part of the mountain sports world that has become not just a little bit commodified, but extremely commodified. And that that commodification is often tied with these like extreme adventure sports that are happening Mm -hmm. on mountains. Um, So think about the squirrel suits and literally mountain biking off of ledges and then parachuting down, uh, things like this, and how those things are... Originally started in this kind of like underground world, but now have become famous because almost essentially because of Red Bull. Um, It seems that Red Bull is outpacing everyone in money spent on those types of sports. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to get to those extreme places and to live that lifestyle to the extreme of always what's next is, it feels like nothing else except capitalism to me. And I, I... I guess that among the other things that are worth lamenting about it, that's probably number one for me.
0: Yeah, and I guess I want to take a step back from my previous comment too, and just be clear that I don't, um, I don't find the individuals doing it problematic. Um, so, like, I have no problem with Adam uh, Alex Honold pushing himself to always find that next thing. What I find troubling is that he feels the need to do that. And we have not, mm-hmm. as a society, enabled him and other folks to uh, be able to find resilience and and be satisfied with a life that doesn't require pushing themselves to that limit. And at the same time that we have industries that are uh, making money off of that is 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 troubling to me.
1: Mm-hmm can you imagine a case in which we wouldn't climb mountains
0: no I don't think I can
1: yeah I don't think I can either which I feel like is interesting
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know just as far as looking further into the future of like okay what is the significance of Edmund Hillary climbing Everest uh, yeah I don't know yeah. it's interesting to think about what that means for the long term future hmm. And I guess coronavirus is somewhat of an answer of <laughs> will we not climb mountains? Well, if a mountain is completely commodified and <laughs> falls within the purview of uh, Western society, if there's something there that pushes public persuasion such that it would be an ill taste to climb the mountain, then we're not going to climb it. But other than that, I think we'll always try and find a way up.
0: Yes, and I think um, I, I really I don't have an issue with that on some level. Like I think um i think part of what makes everest so interesting is that when you're looking around it's set in this amazing landscape and why like yes everest is like 100 feet taller than k2 um mm-hmm. but it's not like it stands out as this massively different thing whereas i i, I juxtapose that with kilimanjaro which
1: mm-hmm. like
0: i can only imagine if you grew up with inside of kilimanjaro you would just want to climb Kilimanjaro, whereas Everest seems a bit contrived in that we've identified this as the tallest, so that's the one we have to go to. Right. Whereas right. There's some of these other things, like, you know, here in Roanoke, Mill Mountain has this draw, because it's it's this mountain that's right there that I can do from my house, and I want, I want to experience that. Um, right. I'm not driving, you know, across the country to go do that, and, you know, it's just uh, that, and then the other level being um, the self-created difficulty in it, and don't get me wrong, I don't I don't have any issue with Tommy Caldwell climbing the Dawn Wall, but the fact that we generated a way to climb El Capitan uh, and then we felt the need to make 20 others that were harder than that original route uh, speaks to something that I think is is problematic in it, and that really what we should be doing, in in my mind, is enjoying the experience that that gives us, not um, uh, pushing to conquer the mountain in new and different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. that brought to the surface for me my feelings for Tommy Caldwell and how much I at this point from what I know about him just respect him
0: oh, they, they respect <laughs> the crap and, out of him and
1: and just like him so much and how when he was making that climb how I checked in like three times a day uh, while they were doing that climb just to see how it was going and that there was something powerful in the way he was reporting on it And kind of his personality was coming across and how it seemingly was um, without a lot of what makes me not like mountain climbing, which Mm. is that machoism piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And that he seemingly is able to get rid of that kind of creates a whole different viewing experience. Um, And that it, it, it essentially, too, was safe. It was really, really difficult, mm-hmm. but it was safe. Mm-hmm. Kind of changed the experience. Um, so it, it kind of took adventure sports into a space where like it, it felt a lot better.
0: Um, I would agree with that, yeah. yeah. Um, um. Anyway, you don't have any mountains in Louisville, so you just have to walk the streets. I'm sorry, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> it is pretty flat for the most part. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to share on the mountain front?
1: No, I think I'm good there. All
0: right. Well, we don't really have anything we're looking forward to this next week, but uh we'll be coming back to you next week. Uh I think we'll be looking to have either a guest or another historical event to share with you. I'm I'm particularly pickled. I don't know if Kyle's interested in this or not, but to break down the Jackie Robinson and his uh entry and breaking the color barrier as a as a potential topic moving forward, but um who knows what I we'll be talking that about next week. So, anyway, uh, thank you for listening. Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, Kyle.
1: Thanks, man.